This ad-free podcast is part of your Slate Plus membership. Hello, and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest. For August 18th, 2022, it's the martyrdom of Liz Cheney edition. I am David Plotz of CityCast here in Washington, D.C. I'm joined from New Haven by Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine and Yale University Law School. Hello, Emily. Hey, David. And John Dickerson continues to uh, contemplate the navel of the universe on vacation or something. And that means we have the chance to have a great guest host. It is none other than the senior fellow at Brookings, the founder of Lawfare, the creator of In Lieu of Fun from Washington, D.C., in a hammock, the only hammocking podcaster I've ever met, Ben Wittes. Hello, Ben. Out to convert the world to hammock podcasting one person at a time. I remember once, Ben, you told me a story about how you were going on some TV show and they told you not to spin in your chair. They gave you a spinny chair and you spun in your chair the whole time. And now you have you have a hammock and so you're swinging in a hammock. I did not do TV for years after that. I was so terrible in the uh, swivel chair that I became known among the producers of that show as the swiveler. Well, now you're the swinger. This week on the GabFest, what do we know now about the Mar-a-Lago search and what consequences former President Trump could face for it? Then Liz Cheney goes down to glorious defeat. Could she spoil the 2024 presidential election for Trump? Then the political and cultural battle over the science of how kids learn to read. We'll talk to education reporter Dana Goldstein about the war over reading that never quite ends. Plus, we'll have cocktail chatter. Ben, what are the most important things we've learned in the past week about what the FBI was looking for when it searched Mar-a-Lago and whether the search is connected to any possible crimes by former President Trump? Well, we actually haven't learned that much. We've learned that there was some highly classified information there. We've learned that there uh, may have been uh, some lies or misdirection uh, on the part of the people around Trump or Trump himself as to the disposition of the material that he retained from the White House. Uh, We've learned that there Uh, a lot of rumors about the nature of the information in question. Uh, But we don't really know to this day why it is that the FBI and the Justice Department, up to and including the Attorney General, uh, thought this was a matter of extreme urgency or what, what the true aggravating factors were that, uh, you know, caused this to result in a in an executed search warrant. I think we're we're still waiting for the other shoe to drop on that. Is there going to be another shoe? Are we going to find all these things out? We the public uh, or not necessarily, Emily? I mean, eventually, but not necessarily soon, because the government is opposing releasing the affidavit that would give the underlying facts that would actually explain to us more about why they were so frustrated that they felt like they need to take this unprecedented step of searching 
the residence of a former president, and also a little more or somewhat more about what is actually in these documents. We know that some of them were top secret, that they were classified. We know a little bit about some of them pertaining to um, Emmanuel Macron, the president of France, and the pardon of Roger Stone in the United States. But there's just a lot of specifics that are missing. And I'm curious what Ben thinks. I mean, I have very mixed feelings about whether we should find out any of this. Like this whole kind of half in the shadows, a little bit of information about an investigation that is not yet produced an indictment, it just makes me nervous. Um, you know, it goes back to Jim Comey releasing some information about uh, the investigation of Hillary Clinton's email servers. It's not how the FBI usually does business. On the other hand, you know, Attorney General Garland did say, well, we're going to give you some information because Trump opened up this whole topic by uh, talking himself about what was happening. And so then that changed the calculus, at least in Garland's mind, about what the government can say. And yet the government has stopped short of the specifics that would really explain to people what's going on. I, I do not have a problem with what the Justice Department has done so far. Uh, it seems to me the equities here are not privacy equities on the part of Donald Trump. Uh, they are uh, investigative secrecy equities on the part of the FBI and the Justice Department. And, you know, the Justice Department isn't dishing information about Donald Trump. It's simply uh, moved to release the search warrant and the inventory steps that Donald Trump himself didn't oppose. So they haven't released anything, the release of which Trump did not consent to. And it seems to me if they want to draw the line there and say, hey, we're not ready to, you know, give you chapter and verse on the investigation or the contents of these highly classified documents that we did this uh, search in order to recover, I'm not sure why they should be forced into that. I do think we are going to find out the answer to a lot of these questions uh, because I don't believe that people as smart and careful as Lisa Monaco and Merrick Garland would have authorized a search like this and, and accepted the political blowback that they're getting had they not already decided that this was a matter that they were prepared to see through indictment. That doesn't mean an indictment necessarily materializes, because maybe the evidence collected in the search does not support it. But I do think, you know, if you're going to execute a raid or a search warrant against the president's former president's house, it means you've already decided to go to DEFCON 1, and you're willing to accept you know, threats against the judge, threats against FBI agents, threats against uh, uh, for civil war. Uh, and you don't do that unless you're prepared to see the whole thing through. This was a question I had for both of you, which is, what is the difference between using a search warrant and the power of law to recover documents and using a search war war warrant and the power of law to recover documents and then charge a former president with a crime? Could the recovery just be the end of it all? Like that really, yes, it is true or potentially true that holding on to these documents was a crime and therefore they had to, you know, they had to go to extreme measures to get it back and it was wrong, but that you still don't end up charging him with a crime because the main thing is to get these documents back in the government's possession. Theoretically, you are absolutely right. Uh, you 
run do you do a search like this because you need to verify that everything has been recovered and the principal objective may be the recovery not gathering evidence of a crime but now put yourself in the shoes of Chris Ray the head of the FBI who is the single most cautious and timid man in the city of Washington and put yourself in the shoes of uh his bosses, Lisa Monaco and Merrick Garland, and say, are you really going to do a search of Donald Trump's house and then stop? I mean, that would be, that is the worst possible outcome institutionally for the Justice Department. You you do something that people are going to call, you know, a Gestapo raid, and then you never justify it. And I just don't believe these people are that stupid. Emily, there's been this endless, and if it weren't so awful, almost comical series of explanations and excuses for Trump's behavior around these documents. And the one that I'm most interested in, because I don't, I want someone to explain it to me, is a claim that he declassified everything so there. What is helpful to him in claiming that and what is not helpful? I mean, kind of nothing's helpful because the statutes don't care about whether he declassified things. And also, he appears to be lying. There's no record of any such order. Nobody knows of any system. John Bolton, who was his third national security advisor, came forward and said he had never heard of this. So, I mean, this just seems to be like after the fact magic wand land. Um, But, you know, it sounds good. Like, I took care of this. I was the president. I could do whatever I want. It sort of goes with Trump's make it up as you go along, imperious excuse making. I mean, one of the things, Ben, that, that your colleague Jack Goldsmith has pointed out is that Trump has been incredibly clever, maybe not consciously, maybe it's just he has a he has a natural nose for this, about like stepping right up to the line around legal things and like finding finding gaps and holes and chasms in the law that he can go in and and perform his his alchemical corruption in um so is there is there a possibility that in fact he this is another one of these places where he has found a gap in the law there are norms you know he's destroyed the norms he's destroyed trust but that actually for whatever reason he is not finding he's not breaking laws so it is possible i think in this case it is unlikely um uh the laws surrounding the retention of classified material of government property are pretty clear and pretty broad and pretty unfavorable to hoarders. And they apply to the president, importantly, which is not true of some of these other legal gray areas. Emily, what troublesome tactics could a Republican Congress pursue in 2023 or 2024 against the FBI or DOJ should this indignation about the FBI persist? I mean, they could call for hearings and subpoena documents and just sort of jack everybody up. Um, And then, you know, they could pursue this idea of defunding the agency or some of the agency's work. I don't think they're going to do that because it's so bananas. And also the whole idea of defunding a law enforcement agency after they've been complaining about the mere slogan of defunding the police just seems like a totally wackadoodle. But, you know, they could cause some trouble for sure. Of course, there is never a reprieve from these villains, not even for a minute. And so we have news this week that there were more intrusions by Trump allies into voting machines than previously known, that 
Rudy Giuliani is a criminal target in Georgia for his work to overturn the election there, that Alan Wesselberg, the uh, Trump organization CFO, is going to testify, although he refused to testify against Trump, but he's going to take a he's going to plead guilty and testify about the financial chicanery at that organization. Emily, which of of these is important or what what is interesting in any of these stories to you? Oh, I mean, it's all interesting and important. The part about Giuliani matters because Giuliani knows a lot of things. Um, I mean, first of all, like Giuliani was close to Trump. He was doing all these bogus moves as, you know, a lawyer representing Trump. So he's a worthy target on his own. But also, presumably, if he was going to flip in some way, that would be significant for the government's investigation of Trump himself. Um, And the stuff about the voting machines, it's, you know, it's like a smattering of counties in several states, Michigan, Arizona, Georgia, Wisconsin, key states. And this idea that, you know, in the wake of the election, hard drives were being copied, photographs were being taken of how these voting machines worked. I mean, I guess I have two, I have a sort of split response to this. I was going to say, I don't know how you put that back in the bottle. Like once we have compromised voting machines and questions about the whole machinery of election administration, I worry a lot about the mistrust that that um, creates for both Democrats and Republicans. And then the second thing I would say is like, well, you got to take all that equipment offline. You have to start over again. You have to really try to batten down all the security and make sure that um, rules and policies and personnel are in place so that it doesn't happen again. Of course, what we're seeing is sort of the opposite of that in moves um, that some Republican candidates and officials are making in preparing for the next election. Slate Plus members, you get bonus segments on the GabFest. If you go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus, you can become a member today. And our bonus segment this week is we're going to talk to Ben Wittes, our host today, about his amazing guerrilla operations against the Russian embassy here in Washington, D.C., and his his sort of uh, entire special operations against Russia as it relates to the Ukraine war. Liz Cheney was walloped in the Republican primary for her House seat in Wyoming. She will leave the House in January, detested and rejected by most of her party. However, her defense of the fundamental institutions of American democracy, her recognition that Donald Trump profoundly threatens the survival of the country, or the republic at least, and her unwillingness to capitulate to the easy lie that would ensure her political future, unlike everyone else who did capitulate, these brave acts make her a true and surprising hero. And now she's signaling that she is going to leave the House and take the next step to try to stop Donald Trump. She seems to be planning a run for president. So, Emily, to use Ron Brownstein's term from the Atlantic, this is a kamikaze run. She's not going to be elected president. She's not going to win the Republican nomination. Or if she runs as a third-party candidate, she's not going to be elected president as a third-party candidate. But what could she do, either as a Republican candidate or as a third-party candidate? She can keep voicing her values, which are mostly right now relevant in terms of protecting the democracy and trying to speak out against the Republican Party's complicity in um, acceding to this series of falsehoods about the election 
being stolen in 2020, about, you know, continuing issues with um, trying to undermine the rule of law and um, democracy in the United States, the same things we were just talking about. I mean, she can just keep beating that drum and she'll have a platform for but doing it. But why is it. that an effective run for president or why is that effective in in undermining a Trump presidential candidate? candidacy. I mean, it's definitely not an effective run for president. I don't think she's going to win. But I think that she would be able to use her candidacy to keep speaking out. And the win for her would be getting on a debate stage with Trump, which is pretty hard to imagine the Republican Party allowing to happen. But, you know, that would be a moment where she would be able to actually confront him. You could imagine that being a goal of hers. I mean, I... Again, I'm not really sure whether this is going to work, but she seems super committed to it. The thing about martyrdom uh, is that you're dead when you do it. Um, And (laughs) the thing about your phrase, glorious defeat, uh, is that the noun is defeat, not glory. And I think you can ask this same question about all uh, efforts that aren't intended at victory, but are intended at you know, something less, some making a statement. Liz Cheney uh, has one role to play that, you know, you and I cannot play, which is to debate this in Republican circles and to, uh, you know, most never-Trumpers end up spending most of their time on MSNBC and in, you know... Um, And that's not what she's going to do, right? She's uh, going to try to take this to a a conservative audience. That is God's work. Uh, It's an effort to pierce an information bubble. And it succeeds only to a modest degree, as her vote total in Wyoming shows. Um, I think it's a, you know, noble effort anyway, but, you know, Joan of Arc did not live to see her sainthood. Just just to be clear, I'm talking about political martyrdom, not physical martyrdom. Before we get back to what how she might carry this out, I'm interested, particularly from you, Ben, because I, I feel like you, and I say this in, the, in a way that is truly sincere, I feel like you, given the chance, would be a great martyr, because you're such a man of such principle, like principle and sort of fearless principle. Like, I, I'm, I'm not... I'm not blowing smoke up your ass. Like, this is something I've always believed about you. We need to pick the right cause, though. Yeah. Could go awry. Yeah. Could be hammocks yeah, from Latvia. Right. You never know. Uh, Ben's hammock is from Latvia. what do you think, how do you think it is that she has this courage and principle um, that nobody else or practically nobody else has? Well, so I think it's a very complicated question with her because, you know, she's sainted at this point, And so it's not appropriate to remind people, but she was very late to the game. Liz Cheney was uh, indistinguishable from Kevin McCarthy until just before January 6th. Well, that's why she's sainted. Like, it's really hard. It's easier for those of us who weren't distinguishable from... Right, but I, but I mean, there, there, there are people way. like Jeff Flake who who were taking courageous positions that she was not taking before she was taking them. Uh, there is something about the ferocity and single-minded commitment of her position uh, that she laid it all on the line. She 
uh, she joined with Nancy Pelosi, which is that is a big step to accept an appointment to this committee from Nancy Pelosi. She has worked hand in glove with Benny Thompson, the chairman of that committee, uh, to the point that he trusts her so much that when he has was sick with COVID and had to miss a hearing, he had her chair the hearing. That is unheard of in the House of Representatives. She has clearly made a decision that though she is a you know, deep conservative in all political and policy respects, she is a single issue voter. And the single issue is democracy preservation. And as somebody who is also, you know, I will link arms with anybody who's serious about this, irrespective about how they feel about um, all the other issues that I care about very deeply. I, I have a lot of time for that. And I think that that's actually what's breaking through here that she took every risk. She has just yielded to nobody in her seriousness about this and her commit and, and her commitment to it to the point that she has, you know, dragged her father into the light. You know, he made an incredibly moving ad about Donald Trump, which, you know, if you'd asked me two years ago, what, what are the chances that you'd sort of rah-rah Dick Cheney for a political ad, that would have been a pretty limited possibility. So I think she does, uh, she does matter, and she reminds Republicans uh, of what it looks like to have a soul. Emily, going back to how she strategically could uh, make a difference in a 2024 Republican primary, as you say, it would be difficult to get on a debate stage could she get on a debate stage and what could she do if she were on a debate stage to him? You know, if she's polling at 5%, it will be tricky for them to keep her off. There are various um, ways they could do that, though. Uh, so I think it's still unlikely. You know, once she's there, there's going to be a lot of pressure on her to have some incredible moment. And Trump is really good at slipping out of that noose at making fun of people at bullying them. But I'm ready with my popcorn for that encounter. And I think anybody else, any other candidates on that debate stage would quietly welcome her and try to make space for her to take Trump on because she would be going directly at his central weakness. And I'm not sure we can in any way have hope that another Republican candidate would do that effectively or even try hard. Right. I mean, the truth, of course, also is that an overwhelming majority of the party's members and followers subscribe to the false beliefs that Donald Trump is is putting out. At least they 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 publicly subscribe to those false beliefs and express a willingness, many of them, to destroy the institutions of the country to serve those beliefs. So it is it's very hard to believe that Cheney wins by convincing a majority of Republicans to to do anything. I mean, all she she would she would. She just has to make Trump look so bad that he implodes or lift somebody else up so much. I found myself thinking, actually, I was thinking about this yesterday. I, if you offered me a devil's bargain today, if you said, David, you can have, you can guarantee that Mike Pence will be president in 2025. And it will keep these other piranhas out. Mike Pence, who is anathema to me, but I would take that bargain. I would accept a Mike Pence presidency to forestall the possibility of a Donald Trump or Ron DeSantis presidency at this moment. 
Well, that's what I was going to ask you. Would you say the same thing about DeSantis? And it sounds like you wouldn't. I mean, DeSantis is not quite as bad as Trump, but he he hasn't been given the chance to be be as bad as Trump yet. I, I would not take the Mike Pence deal. I think Mike Pence, uh, unlike Liz Cheney, has not put it all out there. And, he, you know, in fact, in fact, he is quite meditative and re- defensive of those who were chanting, hang Mike Pence. Um, he's, he's not even sure he opposes his own hanging. And I, I, I don't think that that is a good, you know, quality in a president. A little mealy-mouthed, perhaps. I mean, also, there's no way Mike Pence is going to be president. Like, come on, that's not going to happen. So I have a question for you both, which is, if you were Joe Biden, would you appoint Liz Cheney to some cabinet position? Uh, For example, uh, eventually he's going to need a new secretary of defense. I don't see giant differences between them on uh, military policy. Uh, would it be a good fuck you to the Republicans in the Senate to send them uh, Liz Cheney's name for SecDef? I mean, is that the whole point? Just like you get to give the finger to the Republicans in the Senate? Like, I, I don't know. I just feel like that's a really big job. <laughs> no, no. I, so it's, it's a really big job. It's a job she's very qualified for. Uh, Other people are qualified who might share your policy goals more. I don't know. Maybe there is no distance between them. Really? But also, if you want you want her to 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 exist as a as a as a prick as as a something that is damaging Trump every day. I don't think having her as a Secretary of Defense, where she's focusing on military policy. You just gave a very eloquent speech, Ben, a minute ago about how her she she is valiant because she has put everything in this one issue and so she should continue with this one issue the one issue is protecting the republic from the predations of donald trump and those who would would do what what trump wants to do and that you don't get by being secretary of defense or 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 you know De- agriculture secretary. So the right answer is just to leave her alone. The right answer is to leave her alone and to find, you know, if there are ways to celebrate, give her the Presidential Medal of Freedom. I don't know, like do, do things that do things that allow her the possibility of bringing down Trump. But you appoint her to run the commission on the the bison. What's the two hundred fiftieth anniversary of the Constitution? Yeah, that's coming. Yeah, you appoint her to run that commission and you make that commission super high powered. I don't think you put her in something else random. You do. You want to put her in something else random. I don't think random is the Secretary of Defense. No, so so not random. Um, I, I think that there's an argument for acknowledging her as a figure that at this point transcends politics and much as much as there's, you know, I was a big proponent of the idea that Biden should appoint Merrick Garland to be attorney general on the same theory that there should be, you know, somebody who has truly risen above the political system in, in some sense, uh, often make great leaders of institutions. Uh, I can see the argument that she is that to Democrats, but certainly not to Republicans right now. We're joined for this segment by Dana Goldstein, she is a national reporter at the New York Times covering education. It is like being a war correspondent where there's a battle. There's always a battle in education. And uh, in particular, we want to talk today 
about the battle over how kids learn to read and how they should learn to read. There is a ton of evidence, which Dana will tell us about, I think, that kids learn to read in a particular way. And yet even after a generation of this being known, a lot of American kids in our schools are not learning that way. We have reading reading scores that are way down post-pandemic, and we have reading also now being caught up in the culture war. So there is a ton of ferment about reading and how kids learn to read at this very moment. And we want to talk to Dana about that. So Dana, can you start by telling us what the science of reading, to use a phrase that is apparently now popular, tells us about how kids learn to read and how long we have known that it tells us that? So the science of reading is sort of a catchphrase that's being used by a group of educators and parents who have become activists for teaching reading in a new way. And they are asking that reading be taught according to what is known by research in terms of how the human brain learns to read. It has been known since about the late 1960s that phonemic awareness and phonics play a crucial role in how children learn to read. That is basically the connections between the letters on the page and the sounds we hear every day in spoken language. To speak is natural. It's human. We will learn to speak and communicate um, through listening and being around other people who are speaking. It is not natural to learn how to read. Our brains have evolved um, to be able to do that much more recently. Um, it's not sort of innate to our species to learn to read. In order to read, we have to understand there's a connection between the words that surround us that we hear and what we see. So for example, we need to know that ST goes st. So all these are actually rules that can be taught to children explicitly. And it turns out that research shows that teaching that quite explicitly, you know, going through those letters and letter combinations and the sounds they make. And yes, there's a regularity in English, um, what some of the irregular sounds and combinations are. Going through that explicitly, teaching children to sound it out. Um, is very effective. Yet, that is not sort of the predominant way that American teachers are trained to teach children to read. So you've written a lot about this um, in an incredibly fair-minded way, I think. There's also a piece um, in the last week from Time magazine by Belinda Luscombe, and she has a kind of amazing, I thought, quote at the top of this piece. She's talking about... um, the point of view of a teacher in Oakland, California, Kareem Weaver. And he's describing um, using a very structured phonics-based reading curriculum that I think would be in line with the kind of science of reading principles you just laid out. And then he says, for seven years in a row, Oakland was the fastest gaining urban district in California for reading, and we hated it. And what he's talking about is the teachers feeling like this was dumbed down, like this was a straitjacket for them. Weaver has renounced this position. He's now an activist in favor of phonics. But I just wonder how this resistance the teachers have to superphonics-based instructions factors into the reading wars. Because, you know, obviously... On some level, you're going to have some combination of structured phonics and something that has literature and stories in it and a sense of sparking kids' imagination. And the fight is always about what this balance should be, right? Yeah, I mean, effective reading teaching is not ever going to be just phonics. It's going to be starting with phonics in kindergarten, maybe preschool, 
combining that with exposing kids to great literature that interests them and also making sure that some of what they read is knowledge building. Kids need a lot of knowledge of the world, science, history, the arts, sports, in order to make sense of what they read. And so you can't neglect any aspect of the curriculum if you want to build strong readers. Also, you know, structured phonics, those sort of sounded out exercises that I was describing shouldn't be something we spend hours per day on with children. You know, it can be done sometimes in 15, 20 or 30 minutes per day in kindergarten and first grade into second grade. If that foundation has been effectively set, you don't have to keep doing it after that point, which is one of the reasons why it is so important to get to it when kids are very young and create the foundation. I think Yes, there are some teachers who resist this, um, especially in the beginning when they're first asked to do it. And there's a few reasons why. The sort of dominant ideology in teachers' colleges and in teacher education in this country is constructivist in terms of how we teach kids to learn. What that means is that there's a belief that children construct their own knowledge of the world. If you let kids follow their own curiosity, they are going to find knowledge. And if you just expose them to great books and put great books in their hands and read aloud to them, they will be readers. While that is true for some group of children, it is not true for all kids. It's certainly not true for those who are dyslexic, for example, which is a pretty significantly common disability. But there are children who are not dyslexic for whom that is not true. They need more explicit teaching. And importantly, this cuts across class. It cuts across race. Since reporting on this, I cannot even tell you how many friends of mine, colleagues at the New York Times, folks who read to their kids and surrounded them with books every day have come to me and said, this is my child. My child did not, quote unquote, naturally pick this up. And when the school did not teach them explicit phonics, I was forced to go out and pay hundreds of dollars per hour to find a tutor that will do that. That is what upper middle class parents do. The problem, of course, is not everyone can afford that. And so it is really crucial that schools be providing that to kids. So I'm curious about the political mapping of the phonics and whole literacy debate. Normally, we think of, in the modern political context, the right as uh, resisting science-based evidence uh, and the left as associating itself with science-based evidence. But here you have a situation where you've described a mountain of you know, sort of all but dispositive social science evidence in favor of this quite disfavored uh, in liberal circles mode of learning. Uh, And the uh, traditional education champions of phonics have been, uh, you know, people like George W. Bush, right? Um, and, And a bunch of conservative state legislatures. And so I'm interested in how this came to map onto American politics in exactly the opposite way that we normally think of scientific evidence as affecting uh, political debate. Around the year 2000, the federal government took a deep dive into reading and there's a national reading panel. And one of their big conclusions was that we need to have a basis of, of phonics for kids. 
And when asked um, why, why isn't it there, they pointed to the politicization as the main problem. Teachers that I've spoken to who have, you know, done this with kids say that if it is done in the context of a rich literacy curriculum and a rich arts curriculum, it doesn't quash kids reading, reading love. In fact, it gives them the skills they need to love it. And I think one of the things that happens is that stuff that happens at home and can work nicely at home for increasing their love of reading is a waste of time in school, is what many experts told me. Like the school day is short. And every time you transition little kids from one activity to the next, as anyone with children knows, you lose a lot of time. Why not just take that time and spend it on the structure phonics? And you can, you can do, you know, creative stuff throughout the day, but like, Use that time for actually doing this sound letter correspondence so that more of those kids will be able to silently read a year or two down the line. Um, you know, interestingly, I've been so immersed in this debate over the past few years. I picked up um, a structured phonics um, curriculum to use with my own daughter at home. And so I actually have been experiencing this. First of all, that there was a learning curve for me in learning to teach it to her. So I have sort of a renewed respect for the teachers who have become really expert at this because I did have a bit of a learning curve with it. But secondly, that it is really fun. And, and she actually asks me to do it. We don't do it every day, but when we skip it, um, she she says, can we do the phonics? Because I think it's just magical for her as she starts to sound out um, or simple words. Dana, how are the reading conflicts intersecting with some of the culture wars at schools? So um, you wrote a story about Calkins revising her curriculum, trying to make it um, align with the standards in Florida and running into issues with the way in which Florida is trying to control how teachers address LGBT issues and issues of race. Um, are these just like separate things that unfortunately are getting jammed together or is there something else happening here? It's, it's, this is crazy. So if you look at which political leaders are big fans of phonics, it is tends to, tends to be traditionally more Republicans, although there's really no reason that should be the case. And I think way more progressives and Democrats are waking up to this and tuning into this. Um, Ron DeSantis, however, is a very big fan of phonics. And so it is a really big irony here and a coincidence in a way. Um, that this governor who has also signed all these bills to restrict how gender, sexuality, and race are discussed in classrooms um, is now responsible for the following, which is, you know, I mentioned Lucy Calkins, this big curriculum leader, tons of schools use her materials. It's called units of study. Um, she revised her curriculum over the past few years to include a big dose of phonics for kids. And it was, you know, set to roll out this summer. And she found out in focus groups that educators in places like Florida and Texas that have these new curriculum laws around race and gender were really concerned that some of her efforts to put in more diverse representations of, of kids and talk about race and gender explicitly within these materials, you know, a separate track of, of change was going to p potentially run afoul of these of these laws. And so she started to work with her publisher on some revisions. Um, you know, one of the things that raised concern was a, um, a message to teachers not to split students into boys and girls groups for like 
a team activities because some students might not feel that they fit into one specific group there. So she started to do some revisions. It was going to be limited. And this had a huge dust up in the progressive education world. And um, authors started pulling their books from her publisher and saying, you should never acquiesce to these laws. It would be better, you know, not to sell things to districts in Florida and Texas than to edit your materials. So one of the um, deep ironies here is that because of this controversy, uh, Lucy Calkin's revised curriculum that includes phonics is its publication is delayed because of protests around whether or not she should revise how race and gender are treated. And so this will probably mean, you know, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of kids who might have encountered this stuff this fall are going to have to wait longer to get it. Dana Goldstein is national correspondent for the New York Times covering education. Dana, thanks for coming back on the GabFest. Yeah, thanks for having me, guys. This has been. Let's go to cocktail chatter. Emily, when you were having a late summer glass of wine with your loved ones, thinking about the start of the semester, looking back on your glorious vacations, thinking You're about so what, you, what you remember. I am so jealous of your vacations. We won't even talk about that. What are you going to be chattering about? I have been um, back in the land of prosecutors, um, watching a couple of developments with a huge amount of interest. So one was that in Memphis, there was an election in the beginning of the month um, in which Amy Wyrick, the long-running, hard-charging district attorney, was defeated by a reform candidate named Steve Mulroy. Um, This mattered to me because Amy Wyrick is a major character in my book, someone I'd watched for a long time. And this was the first chance that the voters had to decide whether to reelect her since 2014. Um, And that is just the craziest part of the whole story to me, that Tennessee has a statute that gives the district attorney an eight-year term. That is a bad law, Tennessee. You should change that law. But in the meantime, it'll be really interesting to see what happens in Memphis as this new guy comes in and, you know, decides to look back at some of the... um, Uh, shall we say, questionable history of convictions and other aspects as this new guy comes in and looks at some of the skeletons in the closet um, that I think exist in that office. Meanwhile, in Florida, um, Governor DeSantis decided to actually just remove from office a duly elected prosecutor, Andrew Warren, based on promises Warren had made mostly not to prosecute people for having abortions or abortion-related potential offenses. And, I mean, this is like a serious amount of political grandstanding from the governor. It's, um, you know, Warren was elected by the voters. Um, DeSantis was swooping in. But again, there is a crazy statute at the bottom of this, which is a law in Florida that gives the governor this kind of power. As far as I know, this is the only state in which, um, you know, the governor could take out someone who the voters chose just a couple of years ago um, in their local election. And so now Andrew Warren has sued on First Amendment grounds to try to get his job back. Um, I'm not sure how that legal claim is going to fare. But um, politically speaking, it's just really interesting to watch that one as well. Ben Wittes, what is your chatter? So in the long tradition of log-rolling chatters on the Slate Political Gab Fest, I am going to talk a little bit about 
uh, one of Lawfare's uh, recent podcasts, of which I am prodigiously proud of. Um, this week, as people know, is the one-year anniversary of the final U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan. And for the last, uh, most of the last year, uh, two of my colleagues, uh, Bryce Clem and Max Johnston, uh, have been working on this incredible uh, serial podcast called Allies, which is the story of the uh, U.S. special immigrant visa program in Iraq and Afghanistan and how we came to so fail uh, uh, tens of thousands of translators and interpreters uh, in Afghanistan in our departure. Uh, and the story is uh, amazing. It's a 20-year story of policy errors and failure and uh, people caring a lot, but just not quite enough uh, to uh, have a decent exit uh, when we left. Uh, so the podcast is called Allies. It's in seven parts. And um, I cannot promise you that it will not leave you in puddles of tears on the floor. But it is, uh, I, I think, one of the best pieces of work we've done in a long time. And I'm uh, uh, super proud of it. Uh, my chatter. I, I'm not a ghoulish or nasty person, but I do take pleasure in the occasional vicious review. So I wanted to chatter about Dwight Garner's takedown of breaking history, Jared Kushner's memoir. It's in the New York Times. It's an extremely uh, wonderful review. It's a series of stabs to the throat of that robotic doll who meandered blankly through the Trump years. Um, so just to read one paragraph I really liked. The book is like a tour of a once- majestic 18th century wooden house now burned to its foundations that focuses solely on and rejoices in what's left amid the ashes, the two singed bathtubs, the gravel driveway, and the mailbox. Kushner's fealty to Trump remains absolute. Reading this book reminded me of watching a cat lick a dog's eye goo. That was the best this, line. This, I read that out loud yesterday, too. <laughs> I was once at a wedding with Jared Kushner, and he did... He had a force field around him that was really quite repelling. Uh, I guess that's what force fields are. They're repelling. Listeners, you also have chatters. You tweet them to us at, at SlateGabFest and you email them to us at gabfest at slate.com. Please keep them coming. Please send us something that you are obsessed with, a work of culture, a movie, a song, a historical episode, something you find wonderful or horrifying or strange or magnificent and worthy of discussion at your cocktail party. And this week's listener chatter comes from Josh Forsyth. Hi, GabFest. My name's Josh Forsyth. I'm from Shakopee, Minnesota. My listener chatter this week is an article in the journal Science about how birds over the last 50 years have decreased the complexity of their mating songs in order to increase volume in areas with a lot of noise pollution, like from cars. And it turns out, in the wake of COVID-19 in areas like San Francisco, where there was a lot less car traffic on the road, the birds reverted back to what they had 50 years ago, a lot more complex songs at a softer volume. I'm glad they even remembered the songs in the first place, and it's neat to see how resilient they are. That is our show for today. The GabFest is produced by Shana Roth. Our researcher is Bridget Dunlap. Our theme music is by They Might Be Giants. Ben Richmond, Senior Director for Podcast Operations. Still, we have not yet met. 
Alicia Montgomery is the VP of audio for Slate. Please follow us on Twitter at at SlateGabFest and tweet chatter to us there. For Ben Wittes and Emily Bazelon, I'm David Plotz. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next week. Hello, Slate Plus. How are you? Uh, this is going to be a treat of a Slate Plus segment because Ben Wittes and I are old friends, um, but and we live in the same city. But you know, we I don't know. We see each other what once a year or something, once every six months or something. Ben, and since the Russian invasion of Ukraine, mostly I have I have been in touch with you on Twitter, where you every couple of days there's some remarkable tweet that you're putting out about some bit of mischief and mayhem that you're causing here in the nation's capital. And it appears, and I'm looking forward to you describing more of it, that you're engaged in a in a uh, guerrilla operation to make life really unpleasant and funny uh, for Russians at the embassy in the Russian embassy here since the Ukraine war started. So, but that may be a mischaracterization. What are you up to? What is your special operation? No, I think this is <clears throat> a precisely accurate characterization. The Russian embassy is my neighbor. I go by the building. It bothers me every time I go by. Um, I believe in our obligations as a country to protect the facility. And uh, I don't believe that uh, they should feel welcome in my neighborhood. Um, and so I started going by there uh, and noticing that you know, the building was kind of like a big white movie screen. And I remembered this guy, Robin Bell, who used to project uh, uh, the emoluments clause up against the Trump Hotel. And I thought, shouldn't somebody project the Ukrainian flag against that embassy? And so I tweeted that. And everybody seemed to think it was a really good idea, but nobody did it. And so a few weeks went by and this uh, kid who watches in lieu of fun, uh, Matteo, uh, uh, texted me that he thought he'd figured out how to get it done. And so that started the first, what we jokingly call special military operation, um, which was an effort to put the Ukrainian flag on the Russian embassy. And it all would have stopped there, except that the Russians responded. And they responded by trying to blot out with their own spotlight the Ukrainian flag spotlight that we'd put up there. And so we ended up with this incredible viral video of the Russian spotlight chasing the uh, Ukrainian flag spotlight around the building and the Ukrainian flag spotlight evading it. And people started setting it to music and it kind of, you know, became a thing. And so once we'd done that, like, we started doing other things. We we planted sunflowers outside the embassy, sunflowers being the sort of national flower of Ukraine uh, and has special resonance in this conflict because an old woman uh, handed Russian troops some sunflower seeds so that when they get killed, uh, the she'll know where they're buried. So the and then the Ukrainian embassy staff came to plant sunflowers with us, including uh, Ambassador Marakova, uh, and so we've done a bunch of these uh, sort of guerrilla. Uh, most of them involve projection of light. We projected a slideshow of Russian war crimes against the ambassador's house. Uh, and in each case, the Russians respond very, very aggressively. So they've 
now created their own Z spotlights, which is kind of like, you know, having a swastika spotlight uh, that they use to try to uh, drown out our, uh, our images. And the last time we, we tried to show a movie about the Holodomor, which is the forced famine that killed millions of Ukrainians in the 30s, uh, and they actually parked a large van in front of the uh, projector so that we couldn't uh, show it. Uh, so there's, uh, you know, in each case, uh, the goal has become over time to just make the Russians show a little bit of the, the face that they show in at home and in, in Ukraine, uh, the thuggishness, uh the uh, the jingoistic nationalism, the abusiveness. Uh, in one instance, a Russian diplomat got out of his car to stomp on sunflowers that had been laid there by two uh, angelic little children. Um, uh, and so, you know, the idea is just to make life uncomfortable for them, but also to make them reveal a little bit about themselves and who they are and what the nature of the government they're representing is in Washington rather than, you know, the urbane face that embassy staff like to present. What I love about this is both that you're outwitting the Russians um, around all the actions that you're taking and also that you're showing that they actually evince shame, right? If they didn't care, if they thought that what they were doing was totally justifiable, they would just let it go or they would mock you or they would come up with some other kind of tactic. But I think you're totally right that the thuggishness of the response betrays this kind of underlying insecurity as in itself an admission that something wrong is happening, even from their point of view. I know they wouldn't say that, but it's true. Well, I think it's clearly true. So we planted sunflowers. They destroyed the sunflowers. We then reorganized a group of people to come out and replant the sunflowers. They destroyed them again. Uh, and some of that destruction was done in front of us live by, a, you know, a car with diplomatic plates. And just the other day in Ottawa, uh, somebody put a blue and yellow bicycle in front of the, Ukraine, uh, the Russian embassy and a car with diplomatic plates you know, spray painted it black. Um, so, you know, they're incredibly defensive about anything that that suggests uh, sympathy to Ukraine. And they are willing to use, it's not the same thuggish tactics that they use at home, but it's, it's recognizably in the same family, uh, destructiveness, illegality, uh, in order to erase these signs. And, and yeah, I think it bespeaks a defensiveness, it bespeaks a, a guilty conscience, uh, and it bespeaks a siege mentality in which the only audience you have to satisfy is the Moscow audience. They don't care about U.S. public opinion. They care only about showing Moscow that they didn't let this go unanswered. All right, two questions to bring us home, Ben. First, how have you avoided getting arrested or poisoned or put on a sanctions list? That's number one. And number two, how can GapFest listeners support what you're doing or participate or fund it if they wanted to? So uh, thank you for both of those questions. Um, I 
uh, a couple things. So on the arrest side, of course, the Russians don't have the capacity to arrest me here. Uh, we have worked extremely closely with the Secret Service uh, to uh, avoid any problems with law enforcement. Um, we, I generally brief them pretty precisely on what I'm intending to do. When they ask us not to do something, we're very careful to avoid doing stuff. This isn't a situation where the Secret Service, uh, you know, it's not like a protest where they're the subject of it, right? We're not protesting U.S. law enforcement behavior. Uh, and they've been terrific. Um, they're, uh, uh, they have been real professionals, and I have not feared arrest at all, actually. And in, in, a, in a couple cases, they've uh, acted to diffuse situations that could have been troubling. Um, I have not had security issues as a result of any of this from the Russians that I know of. I have had some issues in the past with respect to electronic communications. I would hope the Russians would not engage in, you know, uh, uh, the sort of um, uh, chemical warfare that they engage in in London and Washington. And in any event, uh, I don't uh, drink tea from strangers. So, um, you know, doing what I can. Uh, as to support from people, um, I have, I really don't want people to support this financially um, because I think that people's money should go to uh, uh, Ukrainian relief, to helping refugees. Uh, including, by the way, non-Ukrainian refugees. There's still a lot of Syrian refugees who need help. Uh, and so I would encourage people to use their philanthropic resources in, in that direction. Um, as to what people can do to help, uh, uh, retweet and share in social media the stuff that we're producing about these operations the goal is to maximize the embarrassment to Ru Russian diplomatic staff, and sharing the material is the way that you can do that. We are setting up these situations in order to create, uh, you know, to as Lenin would say, to maximize the contradictions. And the more people see the contradictions, the better. All right. Bye, Slate Plus.